When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Vernomatic Productions. Good evening, everybody. Vernomatic here. Hope everyone's doing well. Tonight, we have a special episode where we're doing the second installment of a brand new series we call Rock and Roll Detention. Now, this series, the premise behind it is it's a chance for myself or Ian O'Rourke or Metal Walt to take a deep dive into a particular subject. Have it be a band, a tour, an album, a festival, whatever it may be. It's our chance to really get granular and share with you, you know, everything about a particular subject. Tonight, Metal Walt and Ian, they're going to tackle the band Badlands. Now, Badlands just so happens their debut album came out today, May 11th, 1989. This is the band with Jakey Lee, Ray Gillen, Eric Singer, Greg Chazon, excellent hard rock, bluesy, metalish type of band in the late 80s. Was not hair by any means, not a hair band, just a kick-ass American bluesy band. So Metal Walt and Ian, they're gonna they're gonna give you more information than you could ever possibly know. It's a good listen. So that's coming up in just a second. First, just want to remind you, get up to our website, metalmayhemroc.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Join our community. Get involved with what we're doing here. Some recent episodes. Last week, we had our running series, The History of Metal. We're up to the year 1992. Two weeks ago, we had the debut of this new series, Rock and Roll Detention. Ian and I tackled the Van Halen album, Fair Warning, on its birthday. And a few weeks earlier, we had Tony from Knucklebones telling us about the figurine and metal memorabilia industry. All interesting, cool stuff for you. So again, get up to MetalMayhemROC.com and sign up for the newsletter. That's about it. So enjoy this one. Metal Walt and Ian are going to take care of this. I'm the Vernomatic. Thank you for your support. And always remember to keep it heavy. Ah, look, you're back in detention. Got it. But this time, you won't be throwing pencils up into the ceiling tiles the entire time. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horn. Your proctors expect you to be on your worst behavior as they give you remedial instruction in the history of hard rock and metal. You're going to school? Hey, settle down. Here's Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke with your rock and roll detention. Good evening, listeners. This is Metal Walt from New Jersey. And I'm here with my co-host, Ian O'Rourke. What this show is going to be, this is going to be an extension of the uh, History of Heavy Metal series. But whereas in the History series, we can only touch upon, uh, let's say, a body of work or a band or an artist for a short period of time. Here we're going to do that deep dive into the subject matter. Um, so sort of using all the schoolroom cliches, we're going to dissect it. We're going to go to biology class and cut it apart and throw it up against the chalkboard and see where it fits. This is kind of uh, a way for us to be able to 
maybe get in there a little bit and elaborate more, particularly when it comes to specific albums or lineups with bands, you know, where we can really get into the nuts and bolts of, of things and kind of, um, you know, talk about what it is about the stuff that we really liked or what we disliked. Yeah. And I, and I think also it's us, it's us for us and the listeners to maybe bring up subjects, bands or artists that are, that fly a little bit under the radar. You know, I mean, anybody can go out there and look up any podcast or YouTube review of the rust rush discography or black Sabbath or Megan, right? It's been done a thousand times over. You know, what's also been done a million times over is, Oh, let's compare the DO era versus the Sabbath era. We don't want to do that. We're, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, but we don't want to repeat subjects just to have our own twist on it. Cause it's been worn out. So we're going to come up with subjects and bands that we think, Hey, maybe you forgot about the band. Maybe you don't know about the band. And like we said, send in your ideas Tell us a band name, an era, a player, a guitar style, a music style, a genre, a festival, a time period of your life or an area of the world that you say, you know what, I want to learn more about this area, and we will do it for you. So that's the premise behind Rock and Roll Detention. We have a couple bands in mind that we're going to spin uh, spin our wheels on initially, but today we've decided uh, a band of ours that we both have an affinity for. It's a favorite of ours. And uh, we feel passionate enough to cover it today. So we're going to do a deep dive on the band, the American band Badlands. Uh, Badlands is an American-based hard rock metal band. It was formed in 1988. So um, this is a band that, you know, they had a short-lived career. They were maybe in and out in four to five years. They had some very prominent players um, put out some really, really killer material, but like so many other bands from that era that came in in the late 80s, uh, the bands kind of filtered out in the beginning of the 90s for the industry changes, but also other reasons too. Um, and this this unit was nothing short of exempt from that. So, uh, But we'll sure. get into all of that today. So, Ian, I want to throw it over to you. Tell the listeners, like, who Badlands is? Who are the? Tell us the band members, first of all. So you got... Obviously, Jakey Lee on guitar. Um, he's the probably the the most prominent forming member, main member. Uh, you've got Ray Gillen on vocals, Eric Singer on drums, and Greg Chason on bass. So Jake was fired from Ozzy's band, if I have it right, correct, after Ultimate Sin? Yep. Yeah, late uh, 86, 87, I think it was, early 87. Um, he had, you know. Wasn't happy with the situation that was going on with, uh, I believe, writing credits and certain things and, you know, knowing what we know about Sharon Osborne, I don't blame him. And uh, he decided he wanted to do something else. Now, the best part about this whole thing is, you know, Jake is a longtime uh, L.A. musician, you know, going back to the late 70s, early 80s, you know, when a lot of those bands, you know, people were cutting their teeth. You know, he was involved with bands like Rough Cut. He was involved with Mickey Rat, you know, going way back, um, you know, before they became Rat. Uh, he was the guy that, you know, ended up, you know, suggesting that they get Warren Martini, who was a friend of his, to replace him on guitar. So he decided to get things going. He got together with, you know, two ex-Black uh, Sabbath alum in Ray Gillen and uh, Eric Singer. And then Greg Chason came from a band called Surgical Steel, who uh, was from the Phoenix, Arizona area, but uh, 
I guess came highly recommended just because of his abilities, um, you know, on the instrument and with songwriting. So that seemed to be the, the beginning catalyst of what occurred. And then they got together and, you know, and like I say, that, that seventies blues based metal hard rock sound, that's what this band was supposed to be derived around. That was the sound that Jake wanted to try to get back again. And that's where some of those bands like rough cut and certain acts that were playing, you can hear it. It doesn't have a uh, British blues kind of vibe. It's got a whole different kind of, kind of rock vibe to it. And they're really a freaking great band. I mean, just when you go through the material on the album, it's one of those, for me, it's push play and play till the end. You know, Hold up, Ian. Before we get into the album, I want to go back to the uh, the origins of the band a little bit more, right? So we cover off sure. on Jake. Yep. You know, Ray Gillen and Eric Singer, they come out of the uh, the Black Sabbath Seven Star touring yep. unit that played over in the UK. And I think we've covered this in our History of Heavy Metal series 86-87. You know, Gillen was a replacement for Glenn Hughes. Um, yep. He was a local New York musician. Uh, a singer, and uh, he was friends with Dave the B. Spitz, who was the touring bassist in Sabbath. Yep. So he comes out of the band, basically, out of the UK tour of Sabbath, and I guess his future was unknown. He went in and cut the demos with Tony Iommi for uh, the Eternal Idol album. Yep. That didn't work out. He leaves the band. Something that has to be tied in here in the history, though, is for a brief period before Badlands were formed, um, Ray Gillen actually tried out for what would become Blue Murder. Blue Murder. And I right. don't know if uh, listeners know that, um, but he was the singer in there initially. Um, and then I believe the the record company, when they were showcasing the demos, John Shikes was showcasing the demos, they came back and they said, hey, we prefer, John, you sing these songs. We think you could come in there as a trio. Out went Ray Gillen, and it kind of freed right. him up. He gave a free agent. Um sure. So he takes Eric Singer with him, and they go in because now they're friends from the Sabbath field, and they become, you know, two-fourths of the member of the band, you know? So that's kind of a, a little bit of the background on how they came. And I think even with Ray Gillen, he was uh, he was a metal singer, but even if you looked at his image, he was uh, – he had that 70s, you know, he could have fit him in humble pie. You know, he wore the cool bandana over his head, the long, straight hair. He's a really handsome oh, yeah. guy, you know. You know, the the one thing about this scene, and I want your take on this before we get into the first album, when you look at the band members themselves, right, from this period of time, right, these guys were not what was out there in 88, 89. They weren't a hair band. They didn't look it. They didn't wear spandex. They didn't have hairspray. They didn't wear pink and green and yellow. These guys were like, they were different from that time frame. You know, uh, the two bands that, that come to mind, that fit with that image and that kind of hard rock sound aside from Badlands is Guns N' Roses and Tesla, you know, and they kind of fit in there, you know, blue jeans, leather jacket, leather vest, you know, boots or sneakers, you know, they, they weren't out there trying to look, you know, yeah. Okay. Ray Gillen's the lead singer. He's a good looking guy. He's got to convey an image. So he's a little bit more dolled up, you know, but when you look at the rest of them, they're just out there and, you know, they're, they're rough and tumbles, you know, Greg chase on always with the black cowboy hat pulled down. So you can just barely see his face, that long hair hanging, you know, and Eric singer, you know, he's just a, you know, a blonde maniac, you know, behind the drum kit. So, I mean, 
these guys, they definitely had their own kind of thing going on, and they really, that sound fit the way that they looked. The sound that they they portrayed fit the way that they looked. and, and that's, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm holding my copy of the CD that I bought, the original CD for right. Matt and Matt, period. And I'm looking sure. at the front cover. I mean, yeah. there's there's four guys. None of them are smiling. Yep. It's, it's a black and white photo, you know, and, and they it all looks got like a wanted black. poster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have black black shirts on and jeans. They're not smiling. They're not trying to look no. pretty and cool. Like they're there. Yep. They're like to, to lay down business to say we're a serious yep. band here. We're not yep. some fluff. No, so you're right. You're absolutely right. So anyway, onto the uh, the first album, the uh, the the, the self titled release. Yep. It comes out in 1989, right? Um, you know what? It, it hits you in the teeth with the lead track, Highwire. Oh, Highwire High yeah. comes in. You hear this monster of a riff that leads it in. It's a fast-paced song. You get in there. You hear Ray Gillen screaming. He goes up high. He goes low. He holds these long, long screams. There's a big extended jam. This right. just, like, captures the listener, and it says, here's what this band is all about. So right. I want to go into the tracks, Ian, too, but you're the musician in our show. Describe the sound, the musical style of of what they were trying to capture on this album. Well, you can hear it's it's your bare bones, you know, rock and roll, hard rock band. You know, you got that, uh, you know, it's not an overproduced guitar sound. It's guitar into maybe a couple pedals into a Zamp um, turned up loud. And uh, the bass player, you know, Greg Chason's the same way. You know, there's nothing, you know, it, the rhythm section with this band, you know, Chason and Singer, these guys definitely locked in together and set up a nice groove. You know, I mean, you, it's rare that you can get people that haven't worked together for a long time to be able to do that, but they locked in nicely and set a nice groove underneath for Jake to just do his, his thing over the top. And then you've got Gillen with that freaking operatic, you know, type, you know, Beller, you know, that he's got, I mean, it's just a, a powerful, powerful voice with a lot of range. Um, so when they all, all these pieces combine together, they just have this, uniqueness to them that is distinctly their own you know and it's it sounds like it could have been something that would have maybe came out in 1977 1978 um but it's got more of the spit and polish because it's you know new new studio new you know that kind of thing but it's still not overproduced you know it's very well done um and you know the the list of songs themselves i mean highwire like you said to start off an album, one of my favorite songs by them. I just love the way that it kicks off. You know, that's a great way to start the album. Yeah, and then the the second track comes in, Dreams in the Dark. I guess you could call this, that was their, their MTV video, or their, at least their first oh, yeah. MTV video. Yep. And that one was probably the, probably the closest song that you could say was a single. It had, yep. it had melody. It was a shorter song. It was radio-friendly, video-friendly at the time. I mean, yep. but you know what? I, personally, for me, for a lot of those bands out of that era, you know, the uh, sort of the, the singles become my least favorite songs because they're a little bit too polished and that kind of thing. This sure. is not a song there that I look at it that way. It was just something that probably Atlantic said, you have to have something that's going to get you on MTV. 
But, right. you know, even across the board, though, on the album, I mean, there's there's different styles. You know, you have a lot of blues bass in there. You have acoustic. You sure. have songs that kind of, they build maybe yeah. in a Led Zeppelin-y type way, Led Zeppelin-type way. You know, you have some hard rockers. Um, and there's a couple of them that are even slower paced, you know, yep. jams, you know, kind of thing. I think of like, yep. like, like a song like Winter's Call, right? Talk to me about Winter's Call, Ian, because that one is a favorite of mine. That one has a little bit of everything in it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's probably the most uh, Zeppelinish sounding song on the album. Uh, maybe High Wire a little bit with some of the, the, you know, the stop and go with the, um, you know, the music around the vocals, but the um, winner's call, whenever I hear it, I always have to listen to it with the, the instrumental Jade song leading into it first, because the two kind of go together kind of like um, eruption and you really got me or um, Spanish fly and DOA, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's got this little minute, 23 second acoustic interlude, you know, that he wrote uh, for his daughter. And next thing you know, it brings you right into the beginning of winner's call. And when that song comes in together, I mean, it's just a freaking great song. It's a well written song. You know, that's the, that's the best part about it. It's just, you know, and like you were saying, yeah, a lot of times the singles that were released on albums, you, you get burned out on them kind of fast. I didn't with this album, you know, uh, dreams in the dark winner's call. Those were, those are still favorites for me from this album, you know, because they're just really well done songs and they sounded like nothing else at the time. You know, there wasn't any band that sounded like them and, and nobody wrote a song like Dreams in the Dark or like Winter's Call, you know. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a credit to them as a band to be able to stick out enough during that time period and have that, yeah. uh, their own stamp, you know, so to speak. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just running down the track list here, Dancing on the Edge, Streets Cry Freedom, Hard Driver, all rather straightforward hard rockers, good ones. Um, yeah. you know, hard Driver's a great song. One of my personal favorites on the album is the track number eight, Rumbling Train. You know, it's got the bluesy, slow feel to start with it, and it, it just moves along, along the way. And then it, he opens up and he just rips on the guitar a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is... This is a song later on um, when when he brought out the unit uh, what four or five years ago when he when he brought out the unit Red Dragon Cartel. Oh, Red Dragon this is the Cartel. first time yeah. he was he was performing Badlands songs again ever again after this period, and yeah. this was one that he did I remember on that first tour you know and that's yeah. definitely a favorite of mine and that yeah. but that showcases the other side of the band. The, that's not a radio-friendly song, right? This is something that no. you, when they go out and play it live, it's going to open it up. It's not going to remain a five-minute song. It's going to be six, seven minutes, maybe right. eight minutes. He's going to jam in the middle, you know? And that's a whole different side, not a song at the time that would ever get on the radio or ever be on MTV. And the same could be said for the, the final track on the album, Seasons. A slower song, a moody song, right. features Ray Gillen. See, I was fortunate enough to buy the cassette when it first came out back in 89. So on the cassette release, I actually have the bonus track, Ball and Chain. And Ball and Chain is another one. It's got that heavy, you know, slightly bluesy, just stomping right in your face. But, you know, the one thing I wanted to say, piggyback off what you were discussing, was 
they have these other songs that maybe aren't so particularly radio friendly songs, but they don't sound like filler. They're well written, good songs. You know, you could hear them by themselves and somebody would be like, who's that? You know, and it's like, oh, this is band Badlands. And it's like, you know, they've got this song, Dreams in the Dark. Really? But they got songs like that on there? Yeah. I want more of that. You should get it. It's a great album. So, yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Well, let's talk about them uh, on the road around that time. I was fortunate enough to catch them twice. Really? Um, they initially went out in the States. They were uh, they were the third band on a co-headlining bill of uh, Tesla and Great White. And that was when yep. those two bands were on their highest points. Yep. And I uh, caught them at a uh, down in Philadelphia, actually at the the Spectrum. Um, they only got a half hour or so, and then they came back a little bit later in that year, and they did a theater tour. You know, they would get to play a little bit longer there. Um, yeah. I recall the band, the the Danish band, did Disneyland D-A-D. after the dark opening yeah. up that one. Dad, yep, Dad. But um, yep. what was nice? And about I guess that the was show, a pretty. Su- I guess sorry, I didn't mean to interject, but I guess that was a pretty successful you know, smaller tour for them, the clubs and the theaters when they did that with DAD, because DAD was their, their newer band at the time themselves, you know, so, and they were, you know, trying to get a foothold here, you know, but from, you know, from all points that you check out in between, you know, I guess it was a pretty successful, I was unfortunate that I wasn't able to catch them uh, at any leg on this when they toured. So, but continue, please. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe the only other point to say about this is that uh, I do remember in the show, they, they had the one album to cover, and then they were able to do a few extra songs in there. And I believe, if I if my memory serves me right, they did Purple Haze and War Pigs. So, mm. it, you know, it brought also the little bit of the the Aussie period back into it, you know, to showcase, sure. you know, Ray Gillen, who was singing those songs with Sabbath, and, you know, uh, and, and Jake, who had the, the affinity for Ozzy. So, All yeah, right. that's the debut album. Um, you know, they, they then, we move on to the second chapter of Badlands, which was... You know, my opinion, uh, a bit different. You know, they released Voodoo Highway in 1991. Um, There was a band change. Eric Singer left the band. Um, You read some reports online, it says he was fired. I don't know if that was the case, but it was also around the time Eric Carr uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer and after the Hot in the Shade tour. And Eric had also played in Paul Stanley's solo band, when he toured the States in 89. And I think he looked at that as a bigger gig. And I think probably he just left there. So they go ahead and they bring in Jeff Martin, right? Now, Jeff Martin, um, he was was friends and bandmates with Greg Chason from that Phoenix area. And uh, he also, I believe, he wasn't a traditional drummer. He was a singer in Racer X, but he had, I think, been a drummer maybe in an earlier part of his career. And I remember at the time in the magazines, they said, they felt that he fit the general image of the band more because he had a more 70s style playing of drumming where, yeah. you know, Eric Singer was more of your traditional 80s rock metal drummer. Martin brought yeah. it in. And I think, you know, you hear it immediately in the songs oh, yeah. on uh, Voodoo Highway. It's a much yeah. different album. So yeah. he's, tell me, Ian, he's, tell us about he, or tell us uh, the listeners about the sound on the album, how it changed. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the, the overall template that jake i think was trying to impart with that 70s blues based hard rock kind of vibe is still there it's even more prevalent now you know there's a little bit more of a of a i almost want to say you can feel 
some of the uh, Hendrix or Robin Trower kind of uh, vibe with some of the uh, in-between, you know, playing that he's doing. But it still packs a shitload of a punch, man. I mean, you know, it kicks off with the song The Last Time, which has got this really trippy, you know, kind of uh, almost um, psychedelic-y, you know, Lange effect on the guitar in the beginning, and then it just kicks into the song, and you've got Gillen coming right in with that big note right in the beginning. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it just soars right over the top. So they come right in like they did the last time, but the the way that the songs are structured, there's a little bit more uh, funk kind of vibe, you know, very um, Tommy Bolin ish, you know, kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, they do a really cool cover, you know, later on, you know, on the, one of the last songs on the album, uh, Fire and Rain by James Taylor. And they really do it different. You know, they don't do it in this acoustic kind of vibe. They kind of do it in a, you know, as if you were to hear, like you said, Humble By or, or um, you know, maybe even, you know, like Bad Company or something like that. You know, it's kind of got a little bit more of a uh, to it. Um, but, yeah, this is this was an album for me. At this time period, because, you know, again, 1991, there was a lot of musical landscape changing going on. And for this album, when it came out for me was huge because it was another one of my guitar idols that was continuing down that path with with this project. And they were giving me something that I could digest better than I could say Nirvana or uh, Pearl Jam at the time, you know, so. Oh, Oh, no doubt. And I think as yeah. you, you illustrated perfectly here, I mean, the one thing I'll add in there, you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, you had a funk sound on this. I mean, whereas before you had the polished sound of the album, you know, with the with the vintage sound. Now you had a vintage sound and you had the funk in there. But you listen to the mix on the album, the way the songs were produced and written. It does not sound like an 80s album at all. This one, they actually no. went more retro sounding. Yeah, and yeah. I think an observation I also have is, I think at times they went even like overtly and over the top with the melodies. You think about show me the way it was almost Uh, like very, very melodic in the singing and shine on as, as well. Um, I think some of the highlights for me on them are uh, the soul stealer and three day funk. I think three day funk illustrates perfectly that mix of, Yep. The funk sound, and you got you got the you know, tambourines in there, and the cowbell, and you have a different rhythm in there. That's yes. very something you wouldn't find on on the first album. There, um, you know. Same so with, I think same uh, with you Sil- really had a different sound on this one altogether. Yeah. yeah, same with Silver Horses. Silver Horses has kind of got that. It's kind of hard to describe. It's kind of got like a like a funky kind of you know moving R and B ish almost kind of rhythm. But it's got this, you know, heavy. It's very Hendrixy meets Trower kind of, but with a little bit more, uh, you know, to it, uh, more gravitas, so to speak. But yeah, the, the whole album to me is another one, top to bottom. When I listen to it, I push play, and I, the whole thing goes through. And it was another one, thank God, that I was able to get on cassette back when it first came out. You know, so I have the two of them, you know, bookend next to each other on my on my collection. So. Before we uh, we get on to, uh, let's say, the tour and what would come of the band and, and some of the uh, outside factors on this period, 
Yeah, yeah. The two tracks I want you to comment on, Voodoo Highway, track 10, and the final track, In a Dream, number 13. I mean, if these are short songs, a minute yeah. and a half, two minutes, two and a half minutes. I mean, yep. if you close your eyes and you listen to these songs, you would think this is something you would have, that may have been, a, you know, uh, a, a Robert Johnson cover or something pulled out of the 30s or 40s. You know, swampy, bluesy, something out of New Orleans. Sure. You know, not even just blues, but like old, old, old vintage yeah. blues. You know, the funny part is, you know, what you you kind of caught it right there when you and and I was going to say something about it. The song "Voodoo Highway" to me almost is like um, I always get that kind of reminiscent vibe of, say, like a song uh, uh, "Women and Children First, You know, uh, you know from women and children first, you know, it's kind of got that, you know, very honky tonkish, you know, very, you know, the slide, you know, guitar, the dobro, you know, and everything. It's got that twangy kind of sound. You can hear the, you know, he's keeping the time, the drummer with his foot on a, on a hard floor. So that would be how you would do it when you're sitting in an old juke joint, you know, you're, you're banging your foot on the floor to keep the time, you know, and then you got, you know, over there with a tambourine or the KO or whatever they're doing. It's a really cool song. And then, yeah, um, In a Dream. In a Dream is just, again, it's a well-crafted song, but you could almost hear it being on a, a you know, a free album. You know, uh, you know, it's kind of got that kind of, uh, you know, because Gillen, to me, is that kind of a singer, like a Paul Rogers. You know, they, they are they're very well in command of their voice. You know, their voice is their instrument. They know how to use it well. And, uh, that's, you know, that's what, one of the things, you know, with like in the dream, you know, he's got that, you know, and it's, you know, at the time, you know, we're thinking, you know, oh, well, that was, you know, the last that we're going to hear of this band. So for it to be that song to close out the album, it's almost like the, the, you know, the roller coaster coming in at the end, you know, bringing you back to the, back to the platform, you know, and you're like, oh, wow, you know, that's all right. That was a great ride, you know, almost like a, like a, yeah, like a classic album, you know, from back in the day. So. Yeah, cool totally, stuff. totally. Well, of course, from uh, many bands this year, as we know, um, they were they were not an exception as well. I mean, oh, yeah. when you read up on the notes, uh, they're already going into the the songwriting for this album. There was friction between Ray Gillen and Jakey Lee Jake. over musical styles. Maybe yeah. Ray was pushing him into this zone that we ended up getting with the final product. But band tensions, as the cliche goes. Yeah. Um, and then the, the big factor was um, Ray Gillen was diagnosed with AIDS, you know, before yep. the album was even recorded. But he never went public with it with the band. He never went public with it with the label. But there was this rumor. And I guess that added even more of a band tension around um, this whole situation oh. with him because you didn't know what happened. Right. Um, something that I just learned in reading uh, for preparations for our discussion today was, you know, Paul O'Neill, who, you know, we know is uh, uh, of the late Sabotage. Paul O'Neill of Sabotage and Trans-Siberian Orchestra fame. Yep. He was yep, the yep. producer for Badlands at that time. And apparently Jakey Lee was ready to unload him and fire him as the band manager. And he basically threatened Jake and basically said, if you fire me, I'm going to the label and disclosing that the rumors of Ray Gillen having AIDS are true. And Jakey e. Lee said, basically fell for it. And he basically said, hey, 
You know what? Go ahead and go to the label and tell him that because I got the word from Ray himself that was not true. So fuck him and you're fired. And guess what? Guess what he did? Paul O'Neill went to the label. He disclosed it shortly after it. It came out in public. And uh, apparently this was sort of the beginning of the end. Um, um, it was stated that the, that the label pulled the money on the tour. So they didn't sure. get a chance to really get out there and support the album properly. Now, I did catch them in the summer of 91 um, where they, they headlined and they played the Ritz in New York City. And, yeah. uh, I mean, it was a great show. I remember them doing, you know, sprinkling in on the material for both albums. And I think they did Speed King from Deep Purple and Four Day Creep from Humble Pie. Remember that well? Those were their, yeah, yeah. their encores. But it was almost like right after that tour, was it was in and out. They toured for maybe a month, month and a half on that album. And then you never heard about them again. Um, you know, then, you know, come to find out that shortly after that, the band actually breaks up and, yeah. you know, they had different members in. So Ian, you've done your homework. Tell us about this. You know, there was rumors that there was a, a he, he was fired in between the UK tour. They brought a woman in. What all happened? Sort it all out for us. So apparently there was a, an interview, whether it be in Kerrang magazine that Jake had done at one point and uh, tension was already high between Ray and, and, and Jake and a lot of back and forth talk. And he had made some comments, derogatory comments, I guess, in this article about Ray. And when they got up on stage in, I think it was in England, um, Ray actually pulled out a copy of the magazine and, you know, started saying, yeah, don't go ahead and believe everything that you read because, you know, blah, 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 whatever else. And Jake is off to the side mouth and to the audience. It's all true. It's all true. So there was, these guys were getting to that point where things were coming to a boil. Unfortunately, it did get to that point. Um, they had, uh, what the heck was her name here? Debbie holiday, Debbie holiday. Thank you. I'm drawing a blank. Um, her father was Jimmy holiday who, uh, was a, a songwriter actually worked uh, with Dolly Parton, put a little love in your heart from back in the seventies. She actually was brought in as a singer. Uh, she did a couple of, of uh, club shows with them. I don't think they did anything major. Most of it was on the sunset strip. I think she was actually going to be continuing on from what I've read um, as the singer going forward, but the band just, I don't know if it was the time, of what was going on and you know uh, jake has had his demons throughout the years too between you know drugs and and booze and uh you know he kind of went dormant you know and then ultimately you know was it 93 uh you know regular you know passed from uh from eights yeah I, I think you know to continue on the story with debbie holiday if i uh if i have my facts right mm -hmm. i think Jake fired Ray Gillen. Maybe didn't tell him that. He brought in secretly this woman, Debbie Holiday, rehearsed yeah. with the band. And then I guess they had a UK tour booked. Ray agreed to come back in, and it was already printed in Kerrang. And now there was this tension. They probably just wanted to get yeah. through the shows. Who knew who knew what the future of the band was going to be at that point anyway? Sure. But I think this Debbie Holiday was actually sort of unannounced, but she was a member of, of the unit. So that had to be a hard thing for Jake to get up there at that time in the UK and get on stage with Ray Gillen. But um, 
you know, apparently they said some of those shows, the, the, the pissed off tension between the two of them made for oh, even better, better performances. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. But yeah. ultimately they were done after that, that, that was yeah. the end of it. I think, um, I don't know if necessarily the label dropped them or not, but you just heard nothing out of the unit after that, which was a shame now, but you're now, you got to take it with a grain of salt. So now you're in that 1992, 93, where the whole scene is changing. You know Huge. what? You know, bands are dropping like flies. They, you know, your favorite yeah. band that was on top of the world two years before is just gone into no man's land. Yeah. Um, and then you you hear that, you know, out of nowhere. I remember reading it in a in a in a local newspaper, a rock newspaper, New York, New Jersey, that Ray Gillen had passed away at AIDS. So really, really sad because I don't even think he was in his early forties, and uh, just a real loss. Um, to the musical community because that guy had so much to offer. Even if the Badlands hadn't worked out, you can almost imagine what this guy's career would have taken off and looking like, you know, 30, 40 years later, right? Well, but, especially with some of the musicians that might have been around at the time, maybe trying to cultivate something new. You know, if he wanted to go that 70s rock kind of thing, there was a bazillion guitar players that were out of jobs because now playing solos was no longer f cool anymore. So he could have hooked up with somebody. And look at the, you know, I mean, look at just the short but oppressive uh, resume that he had leading up to this point. You know, he sang for Black Sabbath. He sang for, you know, was, was you know, was in the initial uh, building period for uh, Blue Murder. You know, I mean, so he had worked with some people, you know, and had a, and, started to make a name for himself, you know, and I think that it's too bad, you know, but that was another one of those, uh, uh, you know, trappings at the time was, uh, you know, HIV, you know, yeah. and AIDS, you know, I mean, that's look at all the other people, you know, I mean, Robin Crosby was another guy, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a sad, sad truth, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, and the, the, the one thing that we, you know, at the time, you weren't aware because, you know, you didn't have social media at that time or anything. You didn't know that they sort of, sort of, sort of in a way had more music to come. And then all of a yeah. sudden, you know, you hear rumors that they're bringing in another singer. John West was his name. He was a, an East yep. Coast, Jersey, New York guy. He came yep. in briefly, briefly as, as a singer. Then Atlantic drops him. And then you hear about demos that were recorded um, around that same time. And, uh, you know, you go later into the decade and all of a sudden when it was like just completely out of nowhere in 1998, the album Dusk is released. Right. And I'm looking here at the CD. This was, I don't know, uh, Canyon International is the label. Um, this is a Japanese import. Mm -hmm. So you could see at the time it was just a matter of whether it was a label commitment or some smaller label decided to pick it up. But. I think it's been, it's not even a rumor, it's a fact that these were demos that, of course, they could never go back in the studio and fix them and record them because Ray passed away. Yeah, right. So, but in a way, you got you got an album, right? You got an album of 10 tracks. Yep. And, uh, you know, you read up on it, you hear that even some of the lyrics were the first take. They weren't even, he was doing a lot of scatting and different things because he didn't have even the lyrics written. So you kind of, sure. you get what you get here because there is no more, right? Yep. So I think you and I have some different opinions on it. You know, um, it takes a little bit more of that bluesier rock side. Um, 
um, especially with the production, you know, I think because that they didn't go in or couldn't go into the studio and do a whole lot of fixing, they tried to keep it as bare bones as possible. Um, you know, I, I mean, there's still some surprising stuff on here, but some of the stuff, you know, like I mentioned to you, I, it, it almost, you could tell it was demo stuff because it almost felt like this was stuff that didn't make it for Voodoo Highway. So when they had it left over, they figured they'd put it out there for fans of the band because at that time, Jake wasn't really doing any. He did a couple um, collaboration projects. You know, he was involved with, uh, they had a tribute to Eddie Van Halen. It was done on Shrapnel Records. He was, he played on that. Um, he did, I think, a tribute to uh, Randy Rhodes that they did as well. And uh, he, he did uh, his, a fine pink mist uh, was either late nineties, early two thousands was his first solo album um, that he did. And it was a, a lot of covers and, and a bunch of different jams on there. There's four or five songs that have got some solid hard rock kind of vibe to them. The rest of them are definitely have leaned back more on that, you know, kind of funky meets bluesy kind of vibe. Definitely the way that the guitars were recorded. They don't have that kind of big crang, you know, that kind of big chord sound. Um, but you can tell by the way that Jake was playing more at the time. Um, he really, you know, kind of went full tilt in on that whole, uh, like I said, Robin Trower meets um, Tommy Boland kind of vibe. You know, I mean, Actually, there's two songs on here that sound to me like uh, James Gang. They remind me of early 70s James Gang. They kind of got that, you know, kind of half, you know, funky, half, you know, kind of uh, bluesy. You know, they're rocked up. They got a stomp. It's just a, you know, straight stomp kind of feel to the song. Um, but I love the song Sun Red Sun. Uh, Ride the Jack, which closes out the album, is another really heavy, solid rocker. The song Dog is a killer song. I don't know if that's one of the ones where he was just throwing words out there because there was a dog in the studio or a dog walked by the door, or I don't know what it was, but um, you know, it, uh, there's, you know, songs like tribal moon songs like the river. Um, they're good. They have a, um, a particular kind of, uh, like I say, it's it's definitely more houses of the holy versus physical graffiti, I guess, in my in my eyes, for that kind of if you had to try to put a sound on it, you know, houses of the holy does not have the same kind of stomp that you know Zeppelin II did, or you know, houses of the holy, you know, but it's still got some good stuff to it. But it's the production of it; the guitars aren't this big wall of sound. It's just more, you know, very basic. You know, almost it's almost like he's playing a strat versus his signature guitars you know it's got a little bit of a of a thinner twangier kind of thing to it still a good album though like i mentioned to you in our discussions pre-show you know i was pleasantly surprised it had been a while since i listened to it and to go back and listen to it again i was like yeah okay you know it's for what it is you know it, it's a good album you know and at the time you know we would i think anybody would have taken anything just to be able to have some material from the band so yeah, I, I agree with you there. It was not one that I remembered when I pulled out the CD about two weeks ago and I listened to it two yep. or three times and I was pleasantly surprised as well. And I agree with you. I think, you know, I think my favorites on the album are Healer 
uh, and the the title track "Sun Red Sun," and and I also like "Dog" a lot. And the I think the other song that I think is killer on there is that "Fat Cat" because "Fat Cat" Fat is cat's, all. It's like it's cool. It's yeah. got the rocking. It's got a lot of funk on it. It's got the interplay. It's got the the open space jam in the middle. So definitely some yep. good material on here. And again, I go back to the point I made earlier when when Jake went out on the road with uh, the Red Dragon Cartel on the second tour for the second album. I'm fairly certain he played healer and sun red sun on that tour and i remember uh, seeing yeah that should just tell you something that those tracks meant something to him you know for him to go back to them off of what would be the the least regarded badlands album to pull them out and play them live maybe a song healer you know maybe like something the fans wouldn't even have known of it wasn't winner's call or dreams in the dark or rumbling train you know what i mean so i think he definitely left the fans with with a piece of work that was good and as we've said it came a little bit later five six years later than the last release it came in the late 90s where nobody cared about this music anymore but it was fun to know as a collector you could say oh man that long-awaited third rumored badlands album was out there i'm gonna go get the import and uh but it was just hard i think as any fan to for me at least to connect with a piece of music where I didn't knew the band was done, right? Ray was already passed away. The band was over. I had already seen um, Jakey Lee play in a band called Wicked Alliance yep. with uh, with with uh, Mandy Lyon at vocals. Yeah, and that was kind of a weird period too because they never really put out any music, and he did a bunch of covers and songs that never got released. Saw him one time in New Jersey. But it's very hard to connect when you know you're not going to go out and see a band live and sure. uh, there's not going to be an article or an interview you're going to read an East Coast rocker or Kerrang and anything else. But right. listen, it's a nice piece to have and I'm, I'm glad we had it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, you know, the thing is, if you think back on it, um, part of, I guess, the vibe that you could say that this album conveys it's got a, it's got a vinyl pressing sound. It would sound good on vinyl. If you own it on, you know, like we do is, you know, CD, um, it's digitally compressed. So it sounds smaller and tinnier, but if you had this on say vinyl, if you were able to get something like that, it would fit right in your collection with free and humble pie and, you know, all these bands that were, you know, jamming stuff in the seventies, it's got that vibe to it. What I missed personally was that guitar sound, that thump and that chunk that Jake had on those first two albums, those first two albums to me, I hold very dear, but I was very happy to be able to get this at the time to digest it because I was still a big fan of Jake's and you, you didn't hear anything from him, you know, and at the time music magazines were starting to fade away because the internet was coming around. So, you know, like the wicked Alliance there, I, I missed that completely. You know, when I read about that afterwards, I was like, Holy cow. I, because I liked world war three with Mandy Lyon. You know, there was some, I, and that was something I stumbled on back in the day, just on happenstance, you know, but um, that would have been interesting if they could have gotten something like that going. And Red Dragon Cartel, to its credit, has some pretty decent material. It's not Badlands. Um, it's Badland-ish in certain types. Um, 
but I think it's written to try to be its own thing, something a little bit more modern. But again, you know, it's Jake on guitar, and anytime you can get Jake to play, get him to play. I don't care what he's doing. So, oh, absolutely, I, I agree with you. I think the Red Dragon Cartel is good material. It's not Badlands, but the fans were happy he was carting out Badlands material on the tour. Actually, for the the second album tour, he had Greg Chase on out there on the road with him. So that was nice. I got yeah. to see him at. Uh, at uh, in the city, and it was like, wow, great! He still had his uh, signature cowboy hat on and everything. So there was a little yeah. sprinkling of Badlands that still brought it in twenty five, thirty years later. So, Ian, you know, this was really, really good. I think, um, you know, we covered off in depth about the three albums, the origins of the band, the demise of the band, the death of Ray Gillen, and we really painted and illustrated the picture of the band, the sound, the songs, the tours, and a little bit about everything going on at that time. So uh, I appreciate it. Thank you for this. This was a, a job well done. And for the listeners, this is our inaugural edition. I think you're going to get to hear a lot more of things like this. Uh, Ian and I already have two or three other bands that we're not going to disclose today that we are going to continue doing in this series. Um, but again, hit us up on the website and all the media outlets on uh, Metal Mayhem ROC. And we want to hear from you. Tell us what you thought of this episode. Tell us out what else you want us to, to pick apart and we'll... We'll gladly uh, listen to your your suggestions. So, Ian, any parting words before we conclude this show? Thank you to the listeners. You know, hopefully, uh, you know, your input will help us to be able to craft this into something a little bit more streamlined. You know, we'll trim the fat off it as we go along. But we've got a lot of good ideas going forward, and I think that you guys are going to be pleasantly surprised as we roll this out as an extension to the history of heavy metal on Metal Mayhem ROC. Metal for Life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.